Over the past 40 years, Gordon Giltrap has graced the music business with his dedication to his craft and his affection for his audience. As one of the UK's most respected guitarists, he has constantly proved the adage that respect cannot be bought, it must be earned. Now, with a new album out called Woman, it's a personal tribute to the ladies in his life that have meant so much to him, and we'll be talking about that a bit later on. Hi, Gordon. How are you doing? Hello, Ian. You're right. We'll talk about this album a little bit later on. Now, uh, you were born in 1948, and it was, um, was it at the age of nine you had your first uh, guitar came into your house or something? Yeah, around about nine years old. My parents bought me, um, it was basically, looking back, it was a, it was a ukulele made out of plastic <laughs> uh, from uh, Freeman's catalogue. And, you know, I know a lot of people that started out uh, on one of these things, they either had a picture of uh, Elvis Presley on the headstock or Tommy Steele. <laughs> You, you chose Elvis. Uh, but, yeah, but I, I, ironically, it wasn't a bad-sounding instrument that was made out of plastic. What that instrument taught me was the, the, if you like, the mechanics of playing a fretted instrument. Yeah. When I first got it, I thought, what are all these lines on this fingerboard for? What's all that? How can I play more than just the four notes, you know? Yeah. Of course, you, just, you work out how you've got to press your fingers down and do it. So, uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun with that. It, got, it, it set me on a path, let's put it that way. Obviously, progressed on to, uh, was it a jazz guitar you had next? Yeah, the first guitar, the, the proper six-string guitar that my mum bought me was an arch-top guitar. And, uh, of course, looking back, it was it was a jazz guitar, F-holes, uh, acoustic with a cutaway. And uh, it was in glorious sunburst, and I loved that guitar. It was a thing of beauty to me. Yeah, so but you didn't keep it. Yes, it is, really, because uh, I've seen the similar model on eBay, and they fetch quite a few hundred pounds now. Although they really weren't great guitars, but you couldn't get a great deal at that time in, in the 50s, you know. I mean, Fender and Gibson weren't really uh, importing stuff into the country. And anyway, my parents couldn't afford anything like that. So no. you, you had to buy the, um, the kind of European equivalent, although one didn't know the difference, really. Uh, there was a wonderful company, a German company called Hofner, that um, a lot of the lads started out, and the Beatles started out playing Hofner guitars, and most of the guitar legends of my generation started out playing Hofners. You'd be, you'd be astonished who actually started out on one of those instruments. Yeah, that was a benchmark, wasn't it, for uh, for anyone out, starting out, I think, at that time? It was, yeah. In 1966, you managed to get a contract with Transatlantic Records. Yeah, uh, there was a record shop in New Cross, just by Goldsmiths College in South East London, a man called Chris Wellard. It was a folk, blues and jazz record shop. And I went in there and said, look, I'm a, I'm a songwriter. Um, I want to get a record contract. Who would you recommend? He said, you should ring a man called Bill Leader. He's got a label called Transatlantic Records. I then found out afterwards that it was the label that um, my heroes were on, Bert Jones, John Remborn, who were big influences on me. And then it was through that that I was introduced to Bill Leader. He took me under his wing and kind of was my mentor for many years. Yeah, we've got to go on to your uh, your hit album, Perilous Journey, which I think was, was that your second album? My first album came out in about 1968. Right. And it was a mixture of vocals and instrumentals. And then a year later in 69, I followed it up with an album called Portrait. And then in 1970, I had an album released on MCA Records. Again, that was a mixture of vocals and instrumentals. At that time, I foolishly thought I could sing and write songs. It's only looking back, uh, they really weren't that great. But I thought they were, and I was very uh, intense about my songwriting. I thought it was. I thought I had something to say. Of course, I really hadn't lived long enough to have anything to say, quite honestly. But the dominant thing that really came out of all that was, was my guitar playing. And it wasn't until I'd made, all in all, four albums as a singer-songwriter. 
up until about 1973. And then I kind of reappraised what I was doing and I thought, no, I should be going in an instrumental direction. So uh, in 1976, an album was released called Visionary. That was my first all-instrumental album. Yeah. And really the album that got me to a much broader public. And a lot of people assumed that was my first album. I wish it had been. I would have been held as some kind of genius because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd been doing a lot of stuff prior to there. But I'd found my voice, let's put it that way. I found my direction, which I wanted to go in, which was instrumental music. Yeah. And I mean, Heart Song, it was uh, nominated for an Ivan Novella, wasn't it? It was. That was the second album called Perilous Journey. And uh, the single Heart Song was released from that. And uh, yeah, it was nominated for an Ivan Novella Award, which was a great honour. I didn't get it. Elton John won it with uh, Song for Guy. Yes. It was an honour to be nominated. And uh, fondly remembered, of course, for the theme tune of BBC's Holiday Programme from that album as well. That's right. I think that may have contributed to the the piece being nominated because the the BBC picked it up and it was played every week on the Holiday Programme. So millions of people have heard it. Yeah. And uh, that helped us to um, get a few copies, I'm sure. And uh, there's an interesting note here that the first 12-inch colour picture disc to be released in the UK, or Fear of the Dark, you weren't quite happy with the image portrait on the front, were you, Gordon? funny story it is great in the telling now but at the time it was quite embarrassing <laughs> it was the very first full color picture disc to release in the uk and when we went for the photo session myself and the band uh, we were told we had to wear makeup mainly my eyeliner otherwise the image wouldn't be that clear it had to be enhanced before the photograph was taken yeah of course when the the picture disc came out you've only got to look at it to see that basically there's a, a bunch of guys and a girl vocalist and she was entitled to wear a We look like Roxy Music, so it's a little bit embarrassing, really. Maybe Kiss got their idea from you, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think Roxy Music and uh, people like uh, David Bowie were were kind of beating me to the punch there. That was their conscious decision to do that. Yeah, that's for sure. We we were not glam rock in any way, shape or form. We were serious. we, We thought we were serious players, which we were. Yeah.
you worked with the legend Del Newman, didn't you? He even asked you to write the foreword to his book, A Touch From God. What an honour. Well, that was an honour. And I met Del, funnily enough, I met Del in 1970 when he, he did the string arrangements for, for the Testament of Time album. And then I did a, uh, my last vocal album in 73 for Phonogram and Del did the string arrangements on that. And uh, we stayed in touch. I had a great opportunity when I released my Troubadour album, which was 1997. Okay. And uh, Del produced that and did all the string arrangements on it. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a great honour. And I've recently written a tune in his memory called The Melody Weaver's Son. Okay. Which will at some point feature on an album later on this year. Talking of legends, uh, you've worked with some amazing people down the years. Rick Waitman, Brian May, to name but a few. But then in 1996, you played alongside Sir Cliff on the West End stage. Yeah, that was amazing. Funnily enough, I've got an email recently from a bunch of people that have got their own dedicated radio station, All Things Cliff. And they said, 25 years since Heathcliff. And we'd love to interview you and chat to you about that that time and I can't believe it 25 years ago my goodness <laughs> that was a lot of fun I had a great time the show ran for seven months all around the country it was a great memory I loved it and it was a real honour because I mean Cliff and the Shadows to me when I was 13 14 years old were the, the perfect combination to me they were just perfection you had the Shadows you had the great playing of Hank Marvin it was one of my very first guitar influences as he was yes. he really was the first guitar hero in the UK the first British guitar hero Yeah. In 2009, uh, you made and designed your own guitar, which got rave reviews. Uh, some big names have played guitar, haven't they? Yeah, you're talking about the signature model. That, y- uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, I, I didn't design it. That was a genius guitar maker called Rob Armstrong, based in Coventry, and okay. he made the guitar years prior to that. And when the company, John Hornby-Skews, asked me whether I'd like to be involved in a signature model guitar, I said, look, this is the guitar I've been playing. It's a great instrument. If you can clone this, and Rob's happy to be associated with it, which he was, I think it could be a winner. And it was, it still is. It's a, it's a wonderful instrument. And of course, it's ridiculously uh, priced, you know, it's very affordable. Yeah. And it's part of a range of guitars that they, they bought out. And uh, I still play it. I still I play it on stage. I record with it. It's a, it's a great instrument. It really is. I mean, obviously, you can't compare something like that with a, a £5,000 English-made filed guitar or a Martin or a Gibson. No. course the album brush and stone pulled you out of your comfort zone didn't it why is it that you've never really considered yourself as a singer songwriter you said earlier on that that you chose the direction of instrumentals but you you were better than so many out there in the past oh, i don't know about that well the brush and stone album with mr rick wakeman of course that was all instrumental yeah and then a few years later i did an album called ravens and lullabies with his son oliver wakeman who's uh, an equal genius he's inherited his father's musical talent and um that album contained a lot of songs which oliver wrote and uh, i just contributed the uh, the structure of some of the strong songs instrumentally that really did rip me out of my comfort zone because I'd, I'd never worked with a songwriter in that way for a long time and oliver he was younger than my son yeah. So it's like working with somebody who's got all this energy and this drive, you know. And I yeah. thought, God, I don't know whether I can keep up with this guy, but fortunately I did. It was good. I'm very proud of it and have been associated with that album. And, of course, Oliver and I are very close friends. He's a great guy, immense talent, exceedingly underrated. 
exceedingly. Yeah, I agree. 2018 was a bit of a setback year for you health-wise, wasn't it? Well, it was before that. Um, let's go back a few years chronologically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 2015, I was diagnosed with a rather large tumour that had to be removed. And in 2016, I had actually undergone major surgery for that. And subsequently, two more uh, lots of surgery. But I'm OK now. I'm all right now. He says touching wood. But in 2018, my son Jamie passed away. As a thank you to the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham, you gave them heart songs. Yeah, well, that was an album that um, I'd had released for about 10 years ago called um, Shining Morn. Right. And uh, the licensing period for that album was up. So I thought, well, what can I do? I could either find another label to re-release it, but by which time most people would have bought it anyway. And I thought, wait a minute, why don't I revisit this album, repackage it, add some different tracks, and donated to the QE as a fundraiser and that's what I did and do you know something the album all in all is better for it the, the whole package the cover's stunning it's better than the original cover yeah. it gave me an opportunity to, to put on the all star version of Heart Song and also add some extra tracks to it and uh, yeah it's a great standalone album I'm very proud of it and uh, of course it's a way of saying thank you to all those wonderful doctors nurses and surgeons that without whom I wouldn't be speaking to you now no um, but of course, this was way before COVID, of course, since yes. I think since COVID, the whole thing has been magnified with the NHS and the great work that all these people do. And of course, I mean, I'm not going to get into a political thing now, but the nursing profession needs to be paid properly. And just to be given a 1% pay rise, I think it's a bit of an insult. But there you go, we'll move on from that. But I think I think everybody feels the same about that. Well, the job they do is just above and beyond, you know, it's on the front line. And many of these people have given their lives for us, you know, given their lives. You were awarded an MBE. Such an honour to be recognised finally, Gordon. Oh, my goodness, yeah. I tend to forget it at times, you know. Not, not the, you don't walk around wearing it, you know. You know <laughs> oh, have you seen this? I'm an MBE. How important I am. But I've got to give full credit to a very, very special friend of mine called Carrie Martin, a wonderful singer-songwriter from Hull. She actually worked behind the scenes for about three years, unbeknown to me, campaigning for me to get this. Without her, it wouldn't have happened. No. Uh, Yeah, sure. In front of the Prince of Wales, shaking his hand. It was, yeah, it's wonderful. Very emotional experience. And even now, you know, one could uh, be brought to tears by the, by the by the memory of it. Yeah, it's wonderful. And of course, it was great because it wasn't just music. Yeah. Who was your early guitar influences? I know that the Who's Pete Townsend was one. There are five, really. The first one, of course, really was Hank Marvin, The Shadows. So I mentioned him earlier. And then it was The Beatles. George Harrison, and then it was Pete Townsend, and then it was Bert Jansch. They're the big ones. Then it followed up with John Renborn, and of course, within the classical world, the great Julian Bream and John Williams. Yes. So, you know, the major ones really were Hank and Pete Townsend and Bert Jansch. Those three really uh, were life changing for me. Style of play. All completely different, of course. Exactly. Of course, you can hear Pete's influence in pieces like Heart Song and Lucifer's Cage. Yes. 
inspired by DNA, really, that style of playing and, and the Burt's influence as well. Now let's talk about your new album, Woman. Uh, it's got 13 tracks with a girl's name in the title. Tell us about the personal story behind this. Well, I was just thinking one day about, I looked at all the pieces I've written over the years, and there were a hell of a lot connected with women, women's names. Many of them have been commissioned by husbands and boyfriends who wanted me to commission a piece as a surprise for their beloved. So I did that, which was great. Yeah. Uh, one or two friends and family. And one in particular, I wanted to write in memory of uh, Lauren Jansch, who was the wife of Bert Jansch. And they both passed away within months of each other. I mean, you couldn't write this stuff. It's so tragic. Yeah. But I, I just felt that a piece should be written in her memory. guitar playing in style uh, looks so effortless uh, but who today do you admire and of those people who you shared the stage with in the past who is up there with the rest of you Yeah. 
I admire. The great thing about guitar playing is we all admire each other. Yes. If, we, if we're devoid of ego, you know, you always look to other people and think, oh, I wish I could do that. You know, but you can't. You can only do what nature gives you. Um, and I, there was a wonderful quote from Bob Dylan in his book Chronicles about a wonderful guitar player who I actually saw years ago at a club in London. His name was Mike Seeger. He was the younger brother of Pete Seeger. Oh, yes. And the man was a genius. He could play bluegrass guitar, ragtime guitar, uh, country blues guitar. He was a, a virtuoso violinist, also a harp player. He could play anything superbly. And Dylan said, he said, I went to see Mike Seeger the other night. And he said, I thought, how can I be as good as Mike Seeger? Oh, yeah. He said, I came to the conclusion, the only way to be as good as Mike Seeger is to be Mike Seeger. So that says it all. Yeah. You know? I know within the electric guitar world, most self-respecting guitar players look towards Jeff Beck. Yeah. And they go, oh my God. He's a, to, to many, he's the greatest living electric guitar player, without a doubt, in the rock genre. And then, of course, you've got, you, you've got people like Clapton, you've got Mark Knopfler. Mark's a great player, a very melodic, soulful player, and a great writer. Yeah. And I, I, the thing that I admire about people is not their technique. Technique is clever. There are a lot of guitar players far superior to me, far superior. More technique, more speed. But I admire people's creativity. It's what they write. It's what they do with the instrument. Yes. It's what they do with the gift that nature and the universe has given them. That's what's important. I've done an interview recently with Wild Willie Barrett. Now, there's a guy who can turn his hand to so many instruments. You know, amazing. He's lovely. He makes great furniture, doesn't he? <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> yeah, very gifted man. And he's another one. He, he can buy an old guitar from a junk shop and yeah. work on it, and he makes it sound great. You know, he's a, a good rock player. He's, I've never met him. Met John Otway, not yeah. another eccentric character, but... Uh, yeah, wonderful stuff. Well, Wild Willie Barrett, uh, his latest creation, or one of his latest creations, was a, a wheelie bin. <laughs> and um, when he opened the lid, uh, this great roaring sound came out. So so there you go. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, well, eccentricity at his best, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. It's a great English eccentric, and long may he continue. Yeah. Now, each new album from you is like a recently discovered vintage bottle of red. I tend to think so, anyway. Would would you agree that you have matured down the 40 years you've been in the business? I would say so, yeah. I think that although every time I'm working on a new piece of music, uh, I say to Hillary, the best thing I've ever written. She says, no, it's not. She said, you've just maintained a standard. And I go, okay. It's a piece I wrote years ago uh, called Down the River, uh, which has got, got to be 20, 28 years old, maybe 30 years old. Uh, I would be thrilled to write something equally as good as that now.
like when the muse is on you, right, and something takes over, the ego drops away, that's when the magic happens. Yeah. You can't improve on it. When we go back to the visionary album from 1976, there's two pieces on that, uh, the Echoing Green and London, and London in particular. Very powerful, very dark piece of music, beautifully constructed. I don't know how I did it. I wrote it and I thought, how did I do that? I still don't know how I did it, you know? I think the important thing is you can't quantify it and just don't think about it because you'll never. That's the magic of it. If we could all do it, we'd all be writing great pieces of music. It's not given to everybody, but everybody's got a, a talent in some way, shape or form, if you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm just I'm just very lucky and very blessed that uh, I've still got this talent. I can still do it. I can still come up with, with tunes that I think mean something. Fortunately, at this point in time, my hands still work. You know, I mean, I'm 73 next month. I'm still glad to be here, you know, which could have been the opposite case in yeah. 2015. You know, that could have been the opposite case. So be grateful. And you've still got your head of hair. Still a bit. I'm a bit thinner than it used to be. <laughs> it's not, you know, but for goodness sake, you know, you can't. But let's not be greedy, you know. As <laughs> Hillary says to me, oh, she said, don't moan about it. It's still on your head. <laughs> well, you're not missing the barbers during lockdown, that's for sure, Gordon. Oh, no, no, it's right down well over my shoulders. <laughs> I, had it, I had it cut about, oh, about eight months ago but of course then lockdown happened again yeah I'm thinking of not bothering quite honestly I just look like an old hippie really which is what I am <laughs> Gordon Giltrap it's been a pleasure talking with you we wish you every success with the new album hope you'll grace our stages around the country soon well thank you it's been a pleasure chatting to you